0: Let's bow our heads and pray. The psalmist says, Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the paths of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Father God, may may that be true of us here at St. Stephen's. May we delight in your word. May we delight as your people today. Even as we study the Old Testament, that we studied in light of the New Testament and the apostolic authority that we have. May we desire to study Your Word, to understand Your Word, so that we can keep Your laws and find delight there as You direct us in the path of Your commands. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to one of these familiar parts of Exodus, don't we, tonight? The crossing of the Red Sea. And I don't know for you, you, but... Watching Charlton Heston all those years ago as a little boy was one of the greatest things I think I've ever watched. Now it's thoroughly outdated, isn't it? But still, I think it's one of the best dramas or dramatic portrayals of, uh, uh, of a Bible story that I'd ever experienced at the time. And chapter 14 really is such a sort of dramatic um, part of Scripture. And I suppose the heart of this passage is really knowing and understanding and trusting the mighty hand of God. We've had that sort of put to us so many times, haven't we? Throughout the book of Exodus. God has said, I'm going to show my mighty hand. I'm going to show my mighty hand. I'm going to do it so that you will know that I am the Lord. It's reiterated again several times in our passage tonight. It isn't a passage that sort of gives us, you know, moral lift-me-ups or lessons for when things go wrong. Oh, don't worry, God's at hand to sort it all out for us. It's not that sort of passage. That's the danger when we look at Old Testament Scripture. Outside Outside of the light of the New Testament, it's all these sort of moral little lessons for us. Like David and Goliath. Don't worry, we can all fight our enemies and things like that. And, you know, the giants in our life, we can defeat them. We, we can bring them down to sort of little moral uh, lessons for us or lift me But that's not the case here. This passage is meant to serve as a deep, deep reminder to us of who God is. But more importantly... And as we start to see it unfold, the sad reality as God's people, is that, as we live in this relationship with Him, in the knowledge of what He has done for us, in the knowledge of what He is doing for us, we start to see a continuous theme in the Old Testament between the relationship of God and His people, especially when things don't go to plan. And how our relationship with God stands and is experienced during those times. Well, let's jump into the passage. Let's look at chapter 13, verses 17 to 22, because this is really setting the stage for the drama that unfolds in chapter 14. Well, God's people, they've come out of Egypt, and we would expect that they'd take the short route to freedom. But there's an unexpected twist straight away because God didn't do that. God said, we're going to go on the long route. And not many people really understand why. God says it himself, doesn't he? If they face war, they might change their mind and return to Egypt. So is it that in their sort of vulnerable state, God knew that this short route, they'd have seen danger, and that would have meant battle with the Philistines And the danger would be that they ran back to Egypt. But Israel, they've just witnessed the mighty hand of God, haven't they? He's just sent all these plagues down. We've had the sort of Passover accounts. We've had this coming out of Egypt. We've had Pharaoh humbled. So why is it? Why why couldn't it have been that that God says, no, we are going to go this short route. I'm going to sort the Philistines out for you. As another way to encourage you that actually I'm in control? Well, we don't have the answers, but what we do know is that this longer route will in time prove a greater test of the faith of God's people. A far greater test than just a quick battle with the Philistines. Maybe that's the longer viewpoint of this. God is taking them out into the wilderness specifically to test their faith. To see where they really stand under pressure during suffering when things aren't going well. Maybe that's the longer point of this, I don't know. But then we move to verse 18. God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Well, hasn't God just spurred them battle because he doesn't want them to face it because he's concerned that they're just going to want to go back. So why are they out for battle? It's fantastic. Like this morning with the angels. It's one of those, you read loads of commentaries, nobody has a clue what's going on. They don't understand the Hebrew's not very sort of uh, easy to to understand either. So so they don't get it. Well, one commentator I do like his suggestion says, it simply refers to coming out in an orderly fashion. (laughs) Well, that'll do for me. You know, battle formation, they're all in the lines, they're all going out together orderly fashion, let's move on. And that was his explanation for it. Well, whether we understand that bit or not, what we do understand is the following verses. What we are sure of is that the writer once again wants to remind us of the underlying theme of looking back that we've seen so often in uh, Exodus. Look at verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him Because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid. And then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. He he said it as he was about to die, still living comfortably. Uh, In Egypt, God's people were living comfortably. So it's interesting that this this promise from Joseph, this sort of foretaste that he, he seemed to have known what was to come, that God would come to their aid. But more than that, more than that, we are seeing that Genesis theme continued that we've seen so often. He wants to remind us that that promise to Abraham and the patriarchs that followed is being fulfilled. The promise to Abraham and the other patriarchs is being fulfilled. And it's being fulfilled in that promise that God will give them a land and God is doing it. He's taking them out. And that sign of Joseph that God is going to do something. God has promised our forefathers that He's going to do something. That little... putting Joseph in here is to remind us that this is a God who keeps His promises. That He is faithful to His Word. And that this has been orchestrated for over hundreds and hundreds of years and is now coming into fruition. The last thing that we need to recognize with God's people in verses 20 to 22 is that God leads the way. The church, the Old Testament church, we might say the people of God is always led By God, it's really another reminder of the past. We get a hint of God's presence, don't we, in the burning bush, which was basically a a manifestation of God's presence with His people, namely there, Moses. in, In posh language, theological terms, what we call a theophany. And what we see here is a sort of a more intense version of it, because what we see is that there's this cloud and pillar of fire. God is manifesting himself amongst his people, leading his people. And we can see it even further when we the intensity of it when we see the manifestation of God at Mount Sinai with his people. So that's the setting. There's that remembering of what God has done. There's that leading of God that he is going to lead the way. And then we start to get into the drama of the crossing of the Red Sea in chapter 14. The drama kicks in very quickly. We see another twist in the tale because instead of an easy, sort of stress-free exodus, God is still not yet finished with the Egyptians. His judgment on them is still not complete. He leads Israel to the sea with no escape route, so giving Pharaoh the chance to attack or to bring them back only to set up a finale, a final showdown between God and Pharaoh for God to show him who really is God. But it goes deeper, doesn't it, than just enticing Pharaoh. Remember that God is in control of man's heart. And God once again, as difficult as it is for us sometimes to grasp, verse 4, God is going to harden the heart of Pharaoh. He is going to cause him to want to do this. Verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. It's also another reminder, isn't it, that God lives for His glory. God lives for His glory. He won't share it with anybody else other than the Son. Son, uh, God the Son. We see a wonderful picture of that in John 11, don't we, with, uh, with the death of Lazarus. Jesus allows purposefully Lazarus to die and He says it's for My Father's glory and My glory. So within the Trinity, the glory of God the Father and God the Son is shared but He won't share it with anyone else. He doesn't share it with the proud, the wicked, the sinner. No, God opposes the proud. He opposes the wicked. He opposes the sinner. God says, I am going to harden his heart. I am going to cause him to want to pursue Israel, but I'm going to do it so that all the people will know, whether in Egypt or Israel, that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, the great I am." Well, we've seen verse five onwards, that Pharaoh changed his mind. He did change his mind, and uh, he saw that his national workforce had gone, so he and his best army go on the chase. And what's interesting is that even though things are going to plan for God, the Israelites have such a different view in verses 10 to 12. in the desert. You, you can imagine the scene, can't you? The sun's setting and they say, well, let's just, let's just have one final look at Egypt, of, of where we've come from. We've got Joseph's bones. We remember his promise that God's going to come to his aid. Why don't we just have one more look into the sunset, of where we've been and of all that God has done. And what do they see when they turn round? Pharaoh and his army and Israel just goes into meltdown. It's pathetic, really, isn't it? It's awful to see This 600 plus army uh, pursuing them and they fall to pieces. They're terrified. They cry out to the Lord. But this moment of panic isn't portrayed in that sense of us giving a sympathetic nod to them. The the use of the word cry out is actually the same word when they knew that God had heard their cry back in chapter 3. God heard their cry and acted for them. It's the same word. They knew in their hearts that God was acting for them. They knew that He'd heard their cry. Moses reported it to them. But in an instant, they capitulate. Everything that has happened, they forgot. Thirteen chapters of plague and death and deliverance, it's all gone out the window. So embarrassing, isn't it? To see them question God and Moses so quickly. Well, this, as I said at the beginning, starts a long-running theme of grumbling by God's people. Grumbling towards Moses and God. Faithlessness. A lack of trust in the work of God and His mighty name. They seem to be quite happy as slaves, verse 12, after all that. You know, I mean, they were crying out to the Lord for help. Yet actually, they seemed better off there. Well, this outburst is shocking. And we have to read it in light of that it's a sort of tantrum strop. Because they make the comparison of slavery in Egypt or, or death in the desert. They think they're going to die at this sort of first sign of trouble. That's it, they're ready to pack up and go back to what they were crying for deliverance from in the first place. And Moses' response in verses 13-14 to is in no way a comforting pat on the back. Sort of there, there, let me put my arm around you, everything's going to be alright. Moses answered the people, don't be afraid, stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, you need only to be still. That word, be still is literally better translated shut up. We don't like to use words like that, do we not? That's what he's saying. Stop, shut up, and let's put this into perspective. Let's get, our, let's get our understanding of God right again. And when he says, look, the Lord will fight for you, the, the, the impression in the Hebrew is that it's actually a, a sort of rebuke to their water, wafer thin sort of faith. So he's not giving him a nice pat on the back and a cuddle. He's saying, get a grip. Have you forgotten already all that the Lord has done? All that the Lord has promised. And all that he is doing because of his faithfulness to you, his people. So Moses is angry with Israel. He's angry at their faithlessness toward God. And you know, it can be the same for us today, can't it? We can so often display the faith of Israel at times when things start to go wrong. When things don't go according to plan, we cry out and say, Lord, what have you done? Why have you let this happen? What are you doing? And we want to blame somebody instead of seeking the faithfulness of God out. Yahweh, the great I Am. Well, in verse 15, we get a, another twist because the Lord says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Again, That the Hebrew gives off this sense of a rebuke now to Moses. Well, what's Moses done wrong? Moses has told them to shut up and get on with it. And now here, he's getting some stick from God. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Well, I think the reason is that Moses is the mediator between God and his people. Moses is, is literally, it means one with them. So, because he represents this closeness between Israel and God and his personal closeness to Israel, he literally represents the people to God. Therefore, their guilt becomes his in his mediatory role. So Moses in his representation before God is actually getting a rebuke by God as well because he sums up as, God's, as his mediator, Israel's mediator, the heart of Israel. Well thankfully it's a quick rebuke and he tells Moses to tell the Israelites to move on. When all seems lost, when Israel has shown great lack of faithlessness. We see God acts, verse 16. He tells Moses to raise his staff in order to divide the sea. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. The point is made again as to why this has to happen, isn't it? He goes on, "...I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians." so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The reason it has to happen this way, Pharaoh's desire, if you remember, to see God's people drown, to try and reverse that Genesis-created order, will result in Egypt's drowning in God's judgment in the Red Sea. The reference in verse 19 to the angel of the Lord is further proof of the physical manifestation of God's presence here with His people. And His role is to keep the two camps apart. God is acting in such a dramatic way until His perfect plan is complete. I wonder if the relevance of this being dragged out with this period of darkness that we see throughout the night, verse 20, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. I think there's a bit of relevance there. I think that could have served as another reminder to Israel. Haven't we seen that before, not so long ago? Didn't we see it in the ninth plague? Darkness fell on Egypt, light fell on Israel. And how quickly after the darkness, death followed. It should have served uh, a reminder, really in one sense, to both Egypt, but also Israel. But also Israel. Well, either way, the Israelites went through the Red Sea and God allowed them to pursue. And then in 24, verse 24, during the last watch of the night, God caused chaos for the Egyptians. And through instruction to Moses in verses 26 to 29, the waters, as we know, and if we've seen it uh, in the films, it swallows up Pharaoh and the army. And not one survived. But the Israelites were saved again. God's divine judgment on Pharaoh was complete. But it doesn't end there because in verses 29 to 31, the NIVs sort of lost the sort of dramatic conclusion to all that has gone on in chapter 14. Look at verses 29 to 31. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses, His servant. The reason I say that the dramatic conclusion of all that's gone on in this battle between God and Pharaoh has been lost, is the way they've translated verse 30. In verse 30 where it says, that, that day the Lord said Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. That's not the translation. That's not what the Hebrew tells us. The translation is, that day the Lord saved Israel from the mighty hand of the Egyptians. Why is that important? Well, how is that paralleled or contrasted in verse 31? And when the Israelites saw the mighty, powerful hand of God, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and in Moses' his servants. The writer, at the end of all that's gone on, this wonderful, dramatic chapter, says, look, there seems to have been two mighty, powerful hands. The mighty, powerful hand of Pharaoh, the great ruler, that great powerhouse, and the mighty hand of God. But what this has shown us, this great Exodus passage, is that there is only one true, powerful, mighty hand. And it is that of Yahweh. It is the God of Of Israel. The God who saves. He is the true powerhouse. He is the one with the true, mighty, powerful hands. Therefore God's people need not be afraid of anybody who opposes God. Of anybody who comes and tries to set themselves up against God. Because God has shown who is truly God, hasn't He? The God-worship of Pharaoh is nothing more than false worship, idolatry, for there is only one God, the Lord, Yahweh. And even though they had power and might, it was absolutely nothing compared to the true power of God. That's why we're told the people of Israel feared the Lord and put their trust in Him. They experienced it for themselves. Who is there like you? There is nobody like Yahweh. Well, what can we learn today? What's the application for us as we draw to a close? I think if there is one big application, it's this. We aren't in the Exodus story. But we have had an Exodus type experience in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have gone as the New Testament teaches us, like Israel from death to life, haven't we, in Christ Jesus? We've crossed, like the Israelites, from slavery to freedom by the mighty, powerful, saving hand of God. And now that we have crossed from death to life, it's not so much that physical passing through, but it's moving from our spiritual slavery to our spiritual life that has been given that spiritual freedom that we have in Christ. But by going through that experience, we also acknowledge, like Israel, that there are implications for being part of God's family, for being God's people. What are the, applica- what are the implications Sorry, for how I live my life now? Well, there's two ways, isn't there? We could follow the pattern of Israel... And the irony, as we saw last week, is that there's actually only two of the people who came out of Egypt went into the promised land, Caleb and Joshua. So I wouldn't advise that. The other way is faithful living, trusting the mighty hand of God, the God who saves, the God who has given us a promise. We have been set free by God, but for God. To live for His glories. Paul says, you have been bought, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians, which means we are gods. We belong to God. We belong to the Lord Jesus. We are His people, not to do as we please, but to live for His glory under Christ's authority. Israel never sought to live for God's glory, but their own. They they never sought to live faithfully through the bad times. When everything went wrong, they were so quick to turn away from the Lord. But that is not what God requires from us. He requires faithful obedience. The Lord Jesus came, didn't He, to do that. To bring us from death to life. To bring us from slavery to freedom. So that we can now live for Him as King of our lives. Living for the glory of God in all that we do. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we have been set free, that we have gone from death to life, from slavery to free. And we thank you again that we are on our journey into the promised land, that wonderful eternal rest that you have promised all the way back to Abraham for your true people. And thank you that in the Lord Jesus we find the true Israel, We find what it means to truly live in obedience to you, in faithfulness to you, so may we again model ourselves on him and live our lives under his lordship. For we ask it in his name for your glory. Amen.